brings the word tonight. Come on, international team. So today, Yupni Kanyam Sabai Nautani. If you don't know Kamai, that means I'm happy to be here. If you do know Kamai, you can come and correct me later how I pronounce that all wrong. You can sit down, that's fine. Let's thank the band, they were great tonight. My all-time favourite City Point drummer, Nick, on the drums again. Okay, it's great to be here. Uh, we're loving what we're doing uh, over in Cambodia. We're so excited to be there and uh, be seeing the lives changed over there. Uh, but every single, every Sunday, my children say to me, can we go to church? <laughs> and they don't mean church there, they mean church here. Uh, and we desperately miss you guys. My wife uh, desperately, desperately misses you guys. Uh, and so she'll be here in August. Uh, and she's so excited to see everyone. Uh, she w passes on her uh, very warm wishes uh, and tears of missing you. <laughs> Before we get into the Word, and if you uh, have a device or a Bible, John 11, if you want to get ahead of that. But before we get there, I want to just talk very quickly about the She Rescue Home and the work that goes on over there. So it's been nearly 10 years now that the She Home has been open. Uh, it was 2008 that we brought in our first girl. Since then, we are now up to our 67th girl. Uh, that is in the home. We've just in the last uh, month, we've uh, brought in a couple of new girls. Uh, and so what we do there is that we are an aftercare facility. We are a shelter home for girls that have been victims of human trafficking. Uh, they've been raped. They've been involved in prostitution or they're at uh, risk of any of these things happening to them. Uh, and so we have these uh, precious young uh, girls come into our home. We, uh, our age range is from 5 to 16, though at the moment we have a 3-year-old in the home uh, and we have a 21-year-old in the home. So uh, our ages are flexible. We'll help whoever we can. Uh, and we have these precious girls there. Uh, we give them a, a loving home environment. Uh, it is a home that they live in and they have uh, house mothers uh, who are there and care for them and look after them and uh, provide them. Uh, we give them education. Most girls in Cambodia don't go to school. They're not uh, seen as important enough to go to school and get an education. So the majority of the girls cannot read or write uh, when they come to us. Uh, and so we believe that that's just not okay. That's not on. And so we send them to school. Uh, we also have a teacher uh, full-time for us who uh, spends time with them and tutors them and helps them. Uh, and our, one of our very first girls is now uh, this year starting university to be a lawyer. Uh, incredible. Miracle of God uh, that's happening there. So we work with their families uh, to uh, help provide their families a, a safe uh, and secure option that the girl can go back home. We don't want the girls to be with us forever. And so we work with their families. We uh, find ways that their families can get income uh, so that the girl can go home and, and be safe and be loved in the home that she's in. Uh, and so we have an incredible staff over there. We have over 30 Kamai staff over there who are doing an, a great job uh, and who are uh, the hands and feet of, uh, uh, of City Point and what we do. Uh, and you can be a part of that. Uh, and I'm going to tell you that in just a minute, how you can do that. Uh, but before we do that, I actually want to show you what the home looks like. Uh, and we had the incredible 
uh, Pastor Josh Drew come over to Cambodia a few months ago and film for us and he produced this video so that you can not only hear about the great works but you can see what the home looks like. Can we have that? an amazing thing to be a part of and and what I love is that we're not a church that just says we see a need and and we hope someone does something about it or let's pray about it Uh, but we're a church that says we see this incredible need and we're going to do something about it Uh, and we're going to make a difference and tonight you may never go to Cambodia you may never see these girls you may never speak to these girls uh, but you can make a difference in their lives Uh, and there's a few ways you can do that tonight you can go online she rescue home and you can give. There's a number of different things that you can give to there. You can give to a specific project need. You can uh, sponsor a girl. For as little as $10 a month, you can sponsor a girl and you'll get updates about how she's going in her life. And, uh, and so that's a great thing to walk with her journey as she grows and matures. Uh, you can go out into the cafe after the service and see Steph Lang there, uh, she is ready and willing uh, to uh, help you to buy some products out there. The products out there, uh, they are actually made by families in Cambodia. Uh, I have sat in the uh, homes of the people that make those products. I've watched them and spoken to them uh, as they have made these products. uh, And they do that so that we can sell them uh, internationally so that we can give them an income. Uh, By buying these products, you are giving the families of the girls in care an income. Uh, And so we have 20 families at the moment that are making products for us. uh, And so uh, you are incredibly helping them uh, by doing that. uh, By that uh, giving, there's one more thing, something I prepared earlier. Uh, We have these blue tins. Uh, They are just outside each door, I've been told. So grab yourself a tin. Uh, But if you're doing that, if you grab a tin... You are making a commitment that you are going to bring this tin back, that it will not sit in your house, it will not put it, be put in a drawer somewhere and forgotten about, but it will come back, and it will come back with money in it. These tins cost us $2, so you have to bring it back with at least two seventy-five. I was at Pine Rivers this morning and I told them two twenty, but I believe you guys are more generous, right? Two seventy-five. No, bring even more than that. Bring them back to church uh, and make a difference uh, in these girls' lives. Uh, and uh, they are so grateful. Um, the staff there, the, the amount of I think every single staff member uh, has said to me, "Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here." Uh, and uh, the only reason I can do that is because people here are giving and supporting and helping that. And so, on behalf of the staff, on behalf of the girls, can I thank you? 
for giving. One other thing I want to do before we get into the word, I want to honour your pastors, Pastor Sam and Carolina. Let's stand and can we stand and honour them? You guys have amazing pastors. And these guys believed in me and my wife when uh, no one else probably would have, and they probably shouldn't have either, but they did. Uh, they did, and because of them, we're, uh, we've stepped into what God wants us to do, and so we're so grateful for, for their lives and for their generosity and for their spirit of being able to release people uh, into God's destiny for them. Okay. We're going to get into the Word of God. So last week, we looked at Easter and we had uh, the incredible Easter production. Uh, I, saw the, I saw it all on social media, it looked amazing. Uh, and so we remembered the importance and the significance of Easter. And Easter is the most important weekend in the life of Christianity. Often it gets overshadowed by Christmas, Christmas outshines it. But Easter is, Easter's it. Right? And because Easter changes the way that we relate to God, it changes the way we understand God. In the very beginning, you go back to the start, book of Genesis, and you see that God creates humanity. And God's one sole purpose for creating humanity is that we would have a relationship with God, that we would actually know God in a very personal and real way. And people where humanity originally communed with God, spent time with God, spoke with Him face to face. But we know that... What happened is that sin comes into the world, disobedience comes in, uh, selfishness comes in, uh, and that relationship with God was severed. And God in His grace and His mercy wanted to continue to have a relationship with humanity and so He continued to reach out to primarily Abraham and later on the nation of Israel as Abraham had kids. He probably was in Redcliffe. <laughs> And God would reach out to them and God would want to speak to them and God would want them to have a relationship with them. But what it became was something of religion and something of sacrifice and ritual and following laws and being obedient to a set of rules that were written out. It was uh, not really a relationship. And if you look through the Old Testament, there are very, very few people that ever actually had a genuine relationship with God where they, where they had a connection and they felt that they could know him and speak with him. For most people, it was just, I go to the temple, I give my offering, I give my sacrifice, I follow these rules, and, and that was the only way they know God. And I see that all the time. I live in a Buddhist country uh, and in, you know, at the front of every home and at the front of every business, uh, there is a little house like shaped like a little bit of a temple there and they have, uh, this is a shrine and every morning they will go out and they'll give food or they'll give cups of coffee, uh, they'll give little bread rolls, they actually print fake money, like hundreds of dollars of notes. Uh, on uh, paper and so they, they have stacks of this fake $100 notes that they would put in front of their God uh, and they have to embarrassingly at the end of the day go and take away the full cup of coffee uh, and the uneaten roll of bread uh, because God doesn't touch it and I, uh, maybe I don't know how they justify that God wasn't hungry again uh, but they, they, there's no relationship it is just ritual and sacrifice but that was it but God wasn't happy with that and so God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would have, it would not perish but have eternal life. 
And so Jesus comes into the world and Jesus is born to a woman, uh, a young girl in an obscure part of the country. This is a woman of uh, no regard. She's an insignificant woman in an insignificant town. And he comes and he's born and he grows and at the age of 30 he begins his public ministry and he preaches about the kingdom of God and uh, God wants to come down to earth and God wants to speak with you and he does miracles, signs and wonders and he heals the sick and opens the eyes of the blind and opens the ears of the deaf. He feeds the hungry. He does all these amazing things. In fact, John says that there, he did so many great things that we don't even have enough room to write down everything he did. And so what we know today about the life of Jesus pales into significance of what actually Jesus' life was. We only know a small portion. But in all of that, in all of the miracles, in all of the signs, in all of the wonders, in all of the accounts of the great things Jesus did, it wouldn't have mattered if it wasn't for three days. Everything Jesus did, everything God had done for thousands of years hinged on three days. From Friday, Good Friday, through to Sunday, changed everything. Changed everything, split time in two. Gave us a relationship with God that we cannot just follow a moral teacher, that we cannot just be in awe of a great miracle worker, but we can know a personal God and we can know we're forgiven and have salvation. And what we tend to do is that we confine resurrection, the greatest miracle of all time, we confine it. I'm going to talk about the reality of resurrection, or the reason for resurrection, sorry, you can get that up there. We confine it to resurrection is about Easter Sunday. And that's great, we ought to celebrate resurrection on Easter Sunday. And we remember the great thing Jesus did rising from the dead alive, given us hope. Or we talk about resurrection other times in regards to salvation. When someone is saved and they're brought into the kingdom of God uh, and they've gone from darkness to life and they've been given a new life and new hope and a new destiny, a new plan. Uh, and that's amazing when that happens. And we uh, talk about resurrection when it comes to baptism, that they go under the water. And this is a picture of us dying with Christ. They come out of the water. And this is a picture of, of us being resurrected with Christ. But I feel that confining resurrection does us a disservice. Because resurrection ought to be for all of us. But when it comes to salvation, we talk about incredible stories. We talk about the Apostle Paul, who was once Saul, when he was Saul, he would go out and he would actually try to kill Christians. His whole life, he was a religious leader, he was a Jewish leader, and this is what he did. He would uh, go and preach the law and speak the law. He said he knew the law better than anyone, and Jesus upset that, and he didn't like that, and so he tried to actively uh, fight against Christianity, fight against the rise of the church, but he has this encounter with God. Uh, as he's driving down the road, God comes, speaks to him, and he's completely changed. He's resurrected. He's given new life. He's given a new hope. We talk about the woman who was caught in adultery. And here is this woman. She's, uh, she's an immoral woman, the Bible says. that she is, she is out. She is in the act of adultery and she is dragged out of that. 
and thrown before the feet of Jesus in front of a crowd. And here is this woman naked, ashamed, alone in front of a crowd that is calling for her death. And Jesus, rather than joining in on that, says, I don't condemn you, but just go and sin no more. And she is resurrected. She is given new life. And that's an incredible thing. We talk about the demoniac. That's the only name he gets. The demoniac. And he is this guy who is, uh, runs around naked in the cemetery, cutting himself. But Jesus comes to him. And Jesus speaks with him and he casts out the demons and heals his brokenness. And the whole town is amazed because when they see him, he is clothed, he is in his right mind, he is sitting at the feet of Jesus and he is resurrected, he's given hope. And that is incredible for people. If you find yourself, you've got a religious background, if you have an immoral background, if you have mental health problems that you're trying to overcome, uh, if you have addictions that you're trying to overcome, God is able to resurrect you. But for most of us here, we've already had that bang encounter with Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if someone's brought you along, you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, hang with me. We're nearly done, right? It's, it's not too much longer. Another probably 25 minutes. <laughs> but if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, I'm going to let you in on a secret about Christians that your Christian friend who bought you doesn't want you to know about them uh, in just a minute. Um, but for most of us here, we've had that experience. We've had the, the, the time where we've been living a certain way and then Jesus interrupts our life uh, and uh, we are completely changed. For me, it was 17 years ago that I became a Christian when I was living an immoral life full of addictions uh, and all sorts of uh, insanity. And God completely changed me, transformed me, set me free, gave me hope, put me on a future with an incredible destiny. Thank God for that. But I want to talk about a different story about resurrection. There's the story of Lazarus, a man named Lazarus. And spoiler alert, in case you don't know the end of the story, I'll give it away for you. You can block your ears if you want. Lazarus dies and Jesus brings him back to life. Right? But Lazarus is not like these other stories. Lazarus is not like the immoral woman, he's not like Saul or Paul, he's not like the demoniac, because for those people, they didn't know Jesus, then he changed their life, and they were resurrected. For Lazarus, it was different. John eleven three. the two sisters, Mary and Martha, sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Lazarus is a dear friend of Jesus. He wasn't a disciple. He wasn't someone that was trying to learn the ways of Christ. He was a friend. He was someone that Jesus chose to hang out with and converse with and eat meals with. He was a friend of Jesus. But here is the secret that you're, uh, if you're not a Christian, that your Christian friend doesn't want you to know. Sometimes Christians get sick. <laughs> And sometimes Christians have issues, and sometimes Christians have problems, and sometimes Christians feel financial pressure, and sometimes Christians don't know how to raise their children properly, and sometimes Christians fight with their wives or their husbands. 
Sometimes Christians get sick. And they may not want to tell you that, but it's true. But God doesn't cause that, right? God doesn't, let, we need to get that really clear for, for, uh, before we start. God doesn't cause that. God doesn't cause your pain. God doesn't cause your suffering. God doesn't make you get sick. I hear in my job, I hear horrendous stories all the time about things that just should never, ever happen, that break my heart. But I'm safe in the knowledge that God hasn't caused that. But God can use that, right? And this is what happens. Because when Jesus hears about Lazarus being sick, the word comes in, the message gets to him. His response, yeah, I know. And, and he's going to die. And that's for God's glory. Man, I don't want my doctor to say that. <laughs> he's going to die and it's for the glory of God. And this just seems strange and unusual. And I can imagine the disciples like, what? You heal people. That's what you do. Let's go. But he doesn't do that because God doesn't cause your suffering, but he can use it for his glory. And he deliberately waits. He says he deliberately waits two days. Deliberately. Can you imagine what was going through the mind of Lazarus? They've got word to him, he's going to come. As soon as he hears, he's going to come. Uh, I'm getting worse. I, I'm feeling faint. I don't think I can hold on much longer, but I know they've gotten word to Jesus and he's on his way. And he's not. He deliberately waits two days. And preachers make a lot of that, and I've preached this story quite often. And I always say, Jesus waits two days. Why would you do that? But sometimes isn't that how we feel, that God's waiting and in the midst of our problems and our circumstances and our issues, it's like, God, I've sent message, I've prayed, we've interceded, but I'm not seeing the results, I'm not seeing the answers. Why are you waiting? And we don't get it. But he waits two days. And then he says something which is really interesting in verse 7 and 8. Finally, he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? So we think that he's delayed and chances are his disciples were like, oh, I don't know what's going on there, but he's probably keeping himself safe. They thought that Jesus was worried about Jesus. Because if he goes back to that town, he'll, he'll get hurt. They'll try and kill him. But Jesus wasn't waiting for Jesus. But what he did do is he put himself in personal danger to go and do a miracle for Lazarus. You know, God puts himself in personal danger to do a miracle for us. Last week, we saw the account of God putting himself in personal danger, putting his life on the line that he could stand between us and the enemy and say that I will do a miracle in your life. It doesn't matter what it costs me as long as it gives you something. This is what God does for us puts himself in danger. But sometimes that doesn't help us because we're in the midst of it saying, where is he? Where is he? Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, 
If only of you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, you could have done something and you didn't. You could have changed it, but you didn't. You made a deliberate choice to let Lazarus die and you have hurt my family and you've hurt me and you've hurt my brother and we speak these things to God. God, uh, if you had have uh, been there, if you had have come through, if you had have made that loan approval go through, if you had have uh, moved in this circumstance, then I would not be in this situation, God. Uh, Why are you doing this to me? And if that was me as Jesus, (laughs) so not. But if it was... And, and, and Martha was saying that to me. I'd be like, hey, hang on. Chill out. Calm down a little bit because we're going to do a miracle in a minute. Take me to the grave. I'm going to resurrect him. You'll see him again. Everything's good. He doesn't. He doesn't. He says, what do you believe about me? He says, I'm the resurrection of life. Do you believe that? In the midst of your trouble... What do you believe about Jesus? In the midst of your circumstances, what are you declaring about Jesus? Because he says to her, do you believe it? She said, I believe you are the Son of God. In the midst of your circumstances, stop blaming God and start proclaiming the goodness of God and the character of God and the nature of God and saying, God, I believe that you can do this. Because he can. Because Jesus has this incredible way to focus on the finish. We see the life here and now, and we're in the midst of our problems, and we see our problem. We're in the midst of our debt, and we see our debt. We're in the midst of our turmoil, and we just see fighting and tension. Jesus sees the finish. So when I got up here, I spoke Kamai, and I practiced that, so it was pretty fluent. (laughs) I'm not really very fluent. I can probably have a, a conversation with a two-year-old uh, if I'm lucky, but uh, my Kamai is pretty bad. Um, but I'm learning and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of okay. Uh, sometimes I get my message across. Sometimes when I say something, they just stare blankly at me uh, and have no idea. So we just go to pointing and uh, charades to try and work stuff out. Uh, and so I don't think Kamai is ever going to be my second language. But I do have a se- I've learned a second language since being in Cambodia, and it's broken English. I am incredible at broken English. I'm amazing at broken English. I can speak it. I can read it. I can write it if I have to. Right? We have, uh, like I said, we have some um, incredible local Khmer staff. Uh, who are over there day in, day out, uh, helping. And so we have one of our staff members who's responsible for all of the products that you see out there. She's our business manager and she oversees all of this. But her, uh, she's got an incredible heart. She's so generous. She's so loving. She buys me things when she shouldn't. Uh, and and, and she's, her spoken English is good, but her written English isn't that great. And, you know, I can't blame her because... I'm not even going to try to read or write Kamaya. It's just way too hard. But she writes these emails and they're they're pretty hard to understand. Uh, And so she sends them to our international director, Pastor Hilary Ramsey, down at the Carindale Church, an incredible woman of God. And so uh, she sends these emails to Hilary and Hilary just writes straight back to me saying, can you translate this? (laughs) I say, sure. 
And she, she's asking this, she wants to know about this, and then um, she, like, she, she's saying all this information here. Uh, and she's like, okay, because I can read broken English, I can translate it. I can also speak broken English when I come into the office in the morning, I can speak broken English. But there's a trick to it, I'll tell you the trick to broken English so you don't have to learn when you get there. What you do is you have to change your emphasis on the, your words. When we speak, we emphasize the beginning of each word and we hit the start of each word hard and the word sort of trails off as we speak it. What you have to do in broken English is you have to emphasize the end of the word, right? So I can go into my office in the morning and I could say, good morning. And that, they've, they call white people barang. Uh, and so the barang, you know, they've heard enough barangs. They're like, oh, he's probably saying good morning. And, and they say good morning. Uh, but if I go in there and I say, good morning, they're like, ah, good morning. They, they get that. They emphasize the end. And so my incredibly beautiful, wonderful wife uh, named Belinda, right? And so Khmer people cannot, just cannot say Belinda. There's something about the, the beginning of that word that they just can't say. So her name isn't Belinda uh, in Cambodia. It's not even Belle. Uh, her name in Cambodia is Linda. Uh, <laughs> which she loves. She, she so loves being called Linda. Uh, <laughs> so when she comes in August, just call her Linda. But her na- Yeah, that's right. She got it. Pastor Kay got it. Her name isn't Linda. It's Linda. <laughs> and so our staff and the girls in the home love Linda. Like they, and anyone who's met Linda loves Linda, right? So you know that. Uh, but when every time I go into the home, the girls always, their first question, like, I don't care about me, their first question, Linda, Linda coming, where's Linda? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> but what I love is that they emphasize the end. We emphasize the beginning. They emphasize the end. And we love to emphasize the beginning, right? Because you're all having babies, because you love babies. And babies are so cute, and they're so sweet, and so small, and so pretty, and so precious, and usually smell pretty nice until they don't. (laughs) But we don't like the funeral. We don't like the funerals. They're sad, and depressing, and, and, and painful. Right? And so in the Western world, we really don't like funerals, and so we can find them away to nice little halls uh, out of the way somewhere, uh, all neatly decorated uh, and all you know, planned out and precise where we sit down and we eat cookies and drink tea. They don't do that in the third world. Uh, in the third world, funerals are very, very different. So a funeral in Cambodia, uh, they pitch a tent on the road. On, on the street, you just, they pitch a tent. It's the, it's the width of the street, goes about 10 metres. If you want to go down that street, you turn around and you find a different way. And they don't, it doesn't bother them. It's just like, oh, there's a funeral, turn around, go a different way. Bothers me. <laughs> and they decorate their tents and they have pictures up and they all sit in there. They put tables out, tables and chairs out on the road. Uh, and uh, they have catering and they have catering come in. And they have uh, loudspeakers blaring loud, obnoxious, discordant music for three days. We had one at the front of my office. It was painful. I could, after two days, I was out. I'm like, I'm not coming back tomorrow. I just can't do this anymore. Uh, and funerals are a big deal, but they're so open and obvious. They have the funeral at the death after 100 days, after a year. Uh, they do the same thing. So there's funerals everywhere. 
and that it's just what you are a part of. Jesus goes to a funeral. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And he walks up to the grave after he encounters Mary and Martha and he comes to the funeral. And this isn't even like a Kamai funeral. This is a serious funeral. The Bible says there is wailing. There are women so upset and they're uh, emotional and they're screaming out and they're crying. And Jesus is standing in the midst of that and he's hearing people whisper. The Bible tells us he saves others, but he couldn't even save his friend. And the Bible says he cries. And he knew what he was going to do, but he cried. He felt the emotion. He saw the anguish and pain that, that sin and death has caused. And it broke his heart and he cries at that. But in the midst of that, he prays. He prays out loud. And he says, I'm praying out loud, not for me, God, because I know you hear me. But I want all of these people around here to know that you hear me. And God, I'm praying that you would do a miracle. And then he speaks the most incredible words as the stone is rolled. Can you, can you ask them to roll the stone away? That's, man, that's like saying dig up the grave and open it up, open up the car. Man, that's, that's not on. But he tells them to do it. Praise his prayer. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. And I could, I just wish I was there. Can you imagine the scene that would have been there as they're all, seriously? What's he doing? But then they hear a shuffle. They hear some noise. And Lazarus begins to walk out of the tomb. And Lazarus, who was dead four days, gone, no hope for him. He is now resurrected. He is living. He is breathing. He is alive. He is standing before them. And I can imagine the, uh, the wonder, the amazement, the awe, no doubt the confusion that is in the midst of that funeral. But Jesus says one thing about Lazarus when he comes out. Verse 44, the dead man came out his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. They didn't bury people the way we did. There wasn't suits and ties and nice you know, clothing, their favourite outfit. It was linen wrapped, wrapped over their face, over their arms. Over the, the picture is probably a mummy type situation. And that's what comes out of the grave, right? Here's Lazarus like that. And Jesus says, he can't stay dressed like that. And what he's saying is, don't live in defeat when you've been resurrected. When I resurrect you, don't hold on to those attitudes. When I resurrect you, don't hold on to that bitterness. When I resurrect you, don't hold on to those emotions and those feelings which got you there in the first place. When you are resurrected, you need to not just be alive on the outside, but you need to be alive on the inside and your attitudes need to be different. Don't wear the grave clothes when you're alive. He's resurrected because Jesus focuses on the future, but he also is interested in your now. And he says, yes, in the future, but now, now don't live like that. Don't look like that. You're a living, walking miracle, Lazarus. You need to look that way. 
And there is a reason for resurrection. There is a reason God does these miracles for us. Six days before what is now known as the Last Supper, just before Jesus is about to die, He is again at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's having dinner. Can you imagine? You've been dead and now you're having dinner with Jesus. And they're having dinner there and the Bible tells us that there's a huge crowd there. There's a crowd of Jews there, but they're not all on, his, on Jesus' side. Some of them are and many are trying to crouch in and listen and lean into what Jesus has to say and see if they can get uh, a miracle for themselves. But the Bible makes it very clear that there are some there that are opponents of Jesus. And they don't like what Jesus is doing. These are the religious leaders that are out to get Jesus and they're trying to trap him in his plot of what's he going to say, what's he going to do. But they say something very interesting in verse 12, uh, in chapter 12, sorry, verse 10. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Why would they do that? Lazarus isn't really anyone special. He's a normal guy. He's never healed anyone. He's never prayed for the sick and seen them recover. He's never fed the hungry. He's never spoken words like, I am the Father of one. He's not trying to set himself up as anything. He's just a guy that, that knows Jesus. But there's a reason. There's a reason they want to kill Lazarus. Verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. On account of him. It wasn't even the works that Jesus did that made these Jews want to believe in him. It was Lazarus being alive. And can I tell you that because of you, people can, will want to know about Jesus. Because of your miracles, people are going to say, man, what's this God all about? Tell me more. I want to know. I want some of that. Because of the way that you live your life and you carry yourself, they're going to say, man, I need to know more. And people will come to faith because of you. There's a reason for resurrection. Remember at the very start when Jesus gets word and he says, this is for the glory of God. It's right here that we find out why. This is the glory of God he's talking about. That now that people are flocking to Jesus, not because of Jesus, but because of you. Genesis 50, I'll leave you with this story. Story of a man named Joseph. I won't tell the whole story, but read the back end of Genesis. It's an amazing story. Joseph is, has many brothers, but he's the favourite of Dad. Uh, and Dad gives him all sorts of benefits and shows love to him that he doesn't show to the brothers. And so his brothers are jealous. And they actually want to sell him into slavery. First, they actually want to kill him and they say, well, that's maybe a bit too far. Let's just sell him into slavery. Great idea, right? Rather than let's just forgive him and move. But anyway, it's a different sermon. <laughs> and so they sell him into slavery. He ends up going down to Egypt. He's in Egypt. A whole heap of stuff happens by no fault of his own. He ends up in jail. He's forgotten about for a long time. He gets out of jail and uh, through incredible circumstances of God, he becomes the second in charge of all of Egypt. 
and he knows some information. He knows that in seven years a drought and a flood and a famine is going to come, and so and he's equipped with knowledge to be able to set up food and provisions uh, in the seven years before that happens, that they can get through this time. And so he does that, and that happens, and uh, and the, then what happens when the when the famine comes? When the food runs out, it's not just in one portion, it's through a whole, the whole region. And his brothers come down to Egypt. They think he's gone, he's dead. They don't know what's happened to him for years. And they see him and they have to come to him and he is the one that gives them the provision and gives them their grain that they can live. And he makes himself known and they have a moment of reconciliation. And, uh, and uh, you know, this is a, a great end to this story that they, they hug and they weep and they rejoice that they're back together and the brothers are repentant for what they've done. But Joseph says these incredible words in Genesis 50 verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God, but God intended it for all good. God intended it for all good. The devil intended to harm and destroy Lazarus, that, the, that the, the friends of Jesus and the opponents of Jesus would look at him and say, hey, you saved others, but you can't save your friend. But Jesus meant it for all good. He said, this is for God's glory. And so it is with you. The devil is out to put a strain on your marriage and cause contention and cause fighting uh, so that he can destroy the fabric of society uh, and people can say, see, you're no better. But Jesus wants to do a miracle in that, in that marriage, in that circumstance, in that relationship because he intends it for all good. The devil wants to uh, attack your finances and keep you in debt that you feel you can never give, that you feel that you can never support, that you feel a constant weight of pressure and burden upon your life, that you feel trapped by your circumstances around you. But God wants to do a miracle because He intends it for all good. Those words and those accusations that come against you, that make you feel worthless, God wants to do a miracle because He intends it for all good. The enemy, he wants to harm you. But don't listen to that. Because God intends it for all good. Can I have every head bowed, every eye closed? We want to pray this morning. And we serve a good God who intends things for all good. Perhaps you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You don't believe in Jesus. You've not come yet to believe in Jesus and find faith in Jesus. But tonight, tonight you haven't understood everything. But there is something here. There is something about these people. There is something about the presence of God in this place. And you just want to begin to know Jesus. God wants to do a miracle in your life wherever you're at. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've been through or the things you're facing right now. God wants to do a miracle in your life right now. And if you want to receive that miracle, God doesn't push that down you. God says it is up to you. If you want to receive that miracle, if you would just lift your hand right now that I know to pray with you. Right now, you'd say, yes, I want to become a Christian. I uh, don't understand theology. I don't get all of this stuff going, but I just want to know Jesus because I want a miracle. I need 
something in my life. I need a touch of heaven in my life to bring about change and hope. And you know what, church? God wants to do such a miracle in our lives. And we get stuck in the circumstance. And we get stuck in the, but God, why? God, you could have do something. Can I ask you tonight to put your trust in God? Know that He's, got, He's focusing on the future. And that in those times that you would speak faith, and you'd speak hope and you'd speak out His Word and declare His name and put, have a firm conviction. <laughs> this is going to be for God's glory because He intends it for all good. We're going to sing a song tonight uh, and I ask if you want a miracle, I want you to come to the front. We are going to have people pray for you. We're going to see God touch lives tonight. If you're in the midst of that, but why God? I want you to come. If you're struggling with some things, I want you to come. Let's all stand. We're going to sing this song. And please come to the front. Come to the front. Come to the front. Let people pray for you. Let God do a miracle in your life. Let God bring about that change that you've been wondering why it's been delayed. Why is it being delayed? God wants to help. There's no shame in coming forward. No embarrassment in coming forward. God wants to do a miracle. If you need one, run to the front. Thank you, Jesus. Stronger, higher. 